You have attuned to Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Welcome to Season 3, which will treat the topics uh, that are related to pottery analysis in archaeology. For uh, my new listeners, you might feel free to explore Season 1, uh, which deals with the fundamentals of cultural anthropology. Um, and I think season two may come in handy, uh, which addresses the uh, very basics of archaeology. These might be really helpful supplements uh, if you need a little bit of help uh, refreshing some of the basics of uh, core anthropological uh, knowledge. Well, the field of anthropology is, uh, is this discipline that's broadly defined as the study of humanity. Now, archaeology is a significant subfield of anthropology um, and endeavors to understand material culture or the artifacts that humans leave behind through the excavation of archaeological sites. According to uh, uh, sort of our, our pottery goddess, who's guiding a lot of the core knowledge for this course in pottery analysis, um, according to Rice, uh, pottery constitutes a real generous proportion of material that is recovered at archaeological sites. So in some parts of the world, pottery traditions actually extend as far back as well over 10,000 years, making it such an ancient human craft. Uh, now, we'll be devoting another episode to the history of pottery but I, what I want to do today uh, in our episode is talk with you about the most basic and fundamental underpinnings of how archaeologists engage with pottery, uh, which is this kind of object uh, that's been a major interest for archaeologists really since the beginning of the discipline of archaeology. Uh, and we're very interested in the powerful potential of pottery to uh, illuminate past human activities. Now, the word ceramic uh, and the word pottery are often used interchangeably, but they do in fact refer to different things. Um, think of the term ceramic as a broad category. It comes from the Greek word karamos, which translates to burned stuff, perhaps apropos. So technically speaking though, uh, ceramics are objects that when fired become permanently altered or changed. So ceramic things are tiles, um, glass, uh, some building materials, uh, even electrical materials, uh, computer chips um, are uh, ceramic or do contain ceramic elements. Now, pottery is also kind of ceramic, uh, but it's one that's made from baked clay, which maybe is the humblest of all materials. The act of creating pottery is generally thought of as a craft um, involving both skill and the knowledge of skilled work, or what we call craftsmanship. The word craft, I think, is a little bit of an elusive word, but simply it really implies that an object is made by hand. Uh, it also implies some degree of intergenerationally shared knowledge, so passing knowledge down from generation uh, to the next generation. So um, bookbinding, quilting, uh, tinsmithing, embroidery, carpentry, uh, basket weaving, uh, these are all other examples of crafts. And these are skills that modern societies 
you know, really have all but lost touch with, uh, having been replaced by the learning of other types of skills that uh, bear out more economic value in people's lives. Uh, it's said that crafts come from the mind, whereas art comes out of the heart. Art is born from emotion, and it also evokes emotion in uh, people who view it. Whereas crafted things are typically things that we're attracted to, uh, like jewelry, for example. But maybe there are cases where craft can become art, right? If it's appreciated as such in that way. And some say art uh, can fall under craft if it fails to evoke emotion. So uh, you might wanna think about these perspectives and how they resonate with you and in our future readings as we move through the course together. Now, the craft of pottery is certainly one that takes uh, many years to master. And I like how Patricia Crown's article, uh, The Archaeology of Crafts Learning, uh, published in 2014, treats this topic. So Crown is interested in where knowledge to make crafts comes from, uh, how and when learning takes place, and how traditional potters go about learning their craft. The archaeology of learning is a relatively new field, as Crown explains to us, and in cases can help us understand the experience of childhood and past societies. So by engaging in these different modes of knowing, uh, from theoretical, ethnographic, ethno-historical, ethno-archaeological, and archaeological research, uh, Crown deduces in her article that the craft of pottery among the Pueblo of the American Southwest was usually learned as young as five through a learning technique that we call today scaffolded learning. So scaffolded learning progressively moves students to more advanced skill acquisition. Um, it's a term first coined uh, by Wood, Berner, and Ross in 1976. And uh, here they defined it as a process that, uh, quote, enables a child or novice to solve a task or achieve a goal that would be beyond unassisted, excuse me, unassisted efforts, end quote. So very, very young children uh, may have been given lumps of clay uh, to play with uh, and manipulate into shapes or toys. What I find striking is Crown's comment that, uh, quote, playing, learning, and working are so intertwined that it may not be possible to distinguish these activities, end quote. So children also probably assisted adult potters uh, in the most basic of potters tasks, right? Uh, like gathering materials um, and even cleaning up the workspace. Intermediate learners uh, may have been given a vessel to paint uh, that had decorations already inscribed into the surface. And the riskier job of firing was reserved for uh, older children or more advanced students. Now, high levels of skill, Crown says, uh, quote, require about 10 years of practice, optimally four hours a day, uh, end quote. 
And a little bit later on, she continues by saying, uh, quote, the highest attainments in fine motor skills, such as those required for decorating pottery, peak in experts in their 30s. And artists tend to create their highest quality products in their 30s and 40s, end quote. Now, this is sort of a sobering reality uh, in that that is the age uh, that often marks the end of a life cycle for uh, traditional uh, preliterate uh, societies uh, of the present, as well as many cultures of the past as well. Um, but over the course of their lifetimes, uh, potters form a strong connection with their craft in so far that it becomes really part of their identity or what uh, Goslin has called uh, quote one's social signature. Archaeologists recognize really the diversity of pottery forms throughout space and time from tea wares uh, to milk pans to bowls uh, and jars. Now, some of the more unexpected uh, archaeological uh, pottery findings that have been encountered include uh, baby bottles, which have been identified in Greece, um, uh, foot scrapers uh, identified in Pakistan, um, as well as these very curious female pubic coverings uh, that are called tengas, uh, and those have been identified in Brazil. Uh, but pottery has the potential to inform archaeologists really just about so many things. Um, what people ate, how they prepared food, uh, how they cooked that food, where they procured raw materials from to make the actual vessels, um, how a pot was manufactured, um, even the kind of material that was used for fuel. Pottery analysis can also reveal things like aesthetic values. Uh, what pottery meant or symbolized to people of the past. Um, and it can also help us reconstruct the social, ritual, uh, and political behaviors of people from the past. Uh, and sometimes we can even glean insights about trade routes. The quantity of pottery recovered from a site can, uh, uh, can in cases help us extrapolate uh, how many people may have once occupied a site. And chronological types of pottery uh, can be one of the most useful tools in an archaeologist's uh, toolkit to date an archaeological site. Pottery's ability to communicate these things imbues it uh, with incredible value to archaeologists in terms of its potential to yield uh, knowledge. If we know how to read and analyze pottery, it really can tell us a great deal about people of the past. Um, but this is no small task. Uh, with few exceptions, uh, pottery today uh, has become this thing that's relegated uh, to what Prudence Rice calls an object of humility. So uh, colonial conquest, uh, religious missions, the process of globalization, uh, and the introduction of capitalism are factors that have contributed to the decline of traditional potting around the world. Um, it's been noted uh, that contact with colonial enterprises sometimes results in the complete eradication of a pottery tradition. 
And Kubler uh, once noted in, uh, in their writing that, quote, the triumph of one culture over another is usually marked by the virtual cessation of the art of the vanquished and its replacement by the art of the conqueror, end quote. Uh, which really, this is just a sad comment, I think, about how the experience of colonialism was just so uh, devastatingly destructive uh, to anyone in its path. Um, but in other instances, archaeologists observe a syncretism or blending of dominant culture and traditional potting techniques. Uh, so colonoware, uh, which is this uh, earth-toned kind of coarse earthenware uh, that I wrote, uh, have written about in my research, uh, colonoware is a good example of what we, what we mean by syncretism. It's a pottery tradition of blended uh, European, indigenous, uh, and African techniques and forms uh, that are found in large quantities on plantations uh, that have been dated uh, from the 17th through 19th centuries in the American Southeast and Caribbean. A similar syncretic pottery uh, that blended indigenous and European traditions uh, has actually also been recovered uh, in the Andes, uh, dating to the contact period. So while syncretic pottery retains some traditional elements, other bits of ancestral craft knowledge uh, that had been passed down from generations and generations is excised or removed from cultural memory during the process of transformation and replaced with other uh, hegemonic ideas or dominant ideas about craft production. Traditional potters have responded uh, to the introduction of capitalist market demands um, and changing economies in a few different ways. So some have, uh, for example, produced pottery sold as tourist goods and souvenirs. Um, but to keep up with, high, uh, with the high output that's required to sustain their livelihoods, uh, potters have had to compromise standards of production uh, to really have a chance at carving out a profit. Uh, now, to those of you who might be interested in this issue, um, I do recommend Ruth Phillips' skillfully crafted book uh, titled Trading Identities, The Souvenir in Native North American Art, um, which came out in 1998. Um, and I mention it because it addresses the indigenous response to 18th and 19th century uh, burgeoning tourist industry um, through lots of different forms of media, uh, from embroidery uh, to, basket, uh, to basketry. Uh, and I believe she might even have some stuff on pottery too. Um, but in other instances, uh, the introduction of uh, a cash economy has all but squashed the demand for traditional pottery. Um, and this was the case uh, uh, in uh, Dangtalan, Philippines, uh, where the opening of a gold mine flushed villagers with enough cash so that they could now afford to buy preferred brand new plastic containers that really could tolerate uh, uh, much more use compared to uh, fragile earthenware pottery. Uh, now, traditional pottery is fired most commonly by uh, wood fuel, um, but clear cutting for lumber and the transformation of forest into livestock pasture and plantations um, 
uh, even plantations like those uh, for coca plants that uh, that ultimately become processed into cocaine. Um, this type of radical transformation of uh, forests has really led to dramatic deforestation in some of, uh, sadly, the last tropical hardwood forests on Earth. Um, and this has had the effect of forcing some traditional people to ration available wood for more critical tasks uh, like cooking meat over uh, a fire or simply uh, heating chilly homes rather than for firing pottery. And furthermore, many youths of traditional cultures uh, are being drawn to urban areas for other economic endeavors that promise opportunity for social and monetary advancement. Uh, in the town of Chamula, located in uh, Chiapas State in Mexico, potters were faced uh, with a really hard choice of purchasing expensive tracts of woodland uh, for uh, fire fuel or, uh, or the last resort option of abandoning their craft altogether. Um, so it's perhaps apropos uh, that pottery, uh, these objects that are emblematic of years of learned skill, are not really straightforward objects uh, that can be understood through archaeology alone. They're complicated objects. Uh, according to one of my favorite folklorists, uh, Henry Glassie, who, uh, who wrote about this in his book called uh, The Potter's Art, he says that they are, uh, quote, capable of displaying the complexity of the human condition, right? Uh, but as Prudence Rice says, they can also be frustratingly difficult to understand, right? So they reflect archaeological cultures of the past uh, that are probably uh, no longer present and, and, and may not even have any living descendants. So th the people who once used archaeologically found pottery um, are long gone, complicating our task. Archaeologists, unlike cultural anthropologists, uh, usually do not work with living informants to produce knowledge um, because, as we said, those informants are often long gone. Now, uh, pottery, uh, like other ceramics uh, that we talked about a little bit earlier in this episode, uh, are what we call refractory objects, uh, meaning that they're virtually resistant uh, to complete decomposition, uh, making them really hardy survivors that preserve in the ground uh, for a really long time. Um, this does not mean that they cannot be broken, though. Uh, as we know, pottery is fragile, and it really easily shatters. Um, and I think it's important to note here that pottery is often discovered in pieces or fragments by archaeologists. Intact pots are indeed rare and very chance finds, and when encountered are actually usually in the context of burial goods. So um, pots might enter the archaeological record for lots of different reasons. So they may have been uh, discarded, uh, inadvertently lost, uh, perhaps cached or saved for a later purpose and that person never came back, or uh, ritually interred with a decedent, uh, as I was just saying. Uh, the firing process can be very perilous for pottery if it's not executed precisely. Uh, so it is not uncommon 
for pottery to break during the firing process. And when this happens, uh, the broken and imperfect pieces are called wasters. So firing was risky business, uh, as was shipping pottery. And Angelica Kuttner's uh, article, uh, Simply Riveting, uh, published in 26, uh, 2016, rather, uh, which appears in the beautifully crafted uh, Ceramics in America yearly publication. Um, that article tells of a vignette involving George Washington and a shipment of pottery he received at Mount Vernon. So uh, Washington uh, seems to have remarked in surprise that, quote, uh, the China came without any breakage, for which reason I must counter order the addition to it desired in my last letter. End quote. So how we interpret this is that Washington expected to receive broken vessels in a shipment and ended up canceling his additional order uh, because much to his excitement, the first order arrived in mint condition. In other cases, pottery uh, may break upon accident. So Kuttner's article describes how servants were often scolded for accidentally breaking these fragile wares. Jonathan Swift, uh, who was this 18th century uh, satirical author, uh, wrote uh, this publication titled uh, Directions to Servants. And in it, he remarks that, quote, when you carry a parcel of china plates, if you chance to fall, as it is a frequent misfortune, your excuse must be that a dog ran across uh, you in the hall, end quote. Um, we learn of yet another anecdote in Kuttner's article, uh, this one coming from Thomas Jefferson's Monticello in Virginia. And here archaeologists uh, seem to have identified a broken uh, but nearly complete cached teaware set. And the speculation here is that this was a cover-up by household servants or enslaved laborers to avoid punishment. Um, in other cases, pots just get worn out and uh, were discarded uh, into what we call a midden or a trash deposit. So once pottery enters the archeological record, it may experience further deterioration, uh, but typically not to the extent that it completely decomposes, right? Because they're refractory uh, objects. So acidic soils, uh, freeze-thaw weather uh, patterns, uh, and exposure to salt like um, ocean water and brackish, uh, brackish water uh, will accelerate deterioration or even cause pots deposited intact to fragment into pieces, uh, but probably won't cause them to completely disappear. Um, but to complicate uh, the fragmentation of pots further, we also have evidence that pottery may have been intentionally fragmented and deliberately scattered throughout a site uh, and maybe even redistributed uh, in other cases to uh, other people as symbols of social relations, um, perhaps akin to how children exchange friendship bracelets to symbolize uh, their relationships today. Um, that being said, it's not uncommon uh, for archaeological cultures to delay a pot's entrance uh, into the archaeological record. 
So although Prudence Rice refers uh, to pottery today as these humble things uh, and things of humility, they were actually things of value uh, to people of the past uh, and, and in cases of great value. Um, in fact, uh, so well valued uh, that they received intervention to delay their entrance into the archaeological record. So a valued pot uh, may be passed down generational lines as family heirlooms, uh, which is something that I've talked about a bit in my own research on pottery. In other cases, uh, broken vessels were repurposed or upcycled uh, for different functions. And this is evinced by uh, Benjamin Franklin's uh, meditation on a court mug. Um, and in that piece, Franklin writes, quote, if thy bottom part should chance to survive, it may be preserved to hold bits of candles or blacking for shoes or solve for kibbed heels, end quote. Uh, kibbed being uh, this antiquated word for chapped, so chapped and, and dry heels. In other cases, people may prolong a pot's life in a cultural system by uh, mending until they become so worn that they uh, become beyond repair and then are ultimately discarded. And uh, Angelica Kuttner's article uh, really speaks to uh, this point of mending. Uh, so archaeologists have identified uh, the use of glues and pastes, uh, cements, uh, oddly enough, even white lead house paint, right? That all of these uh, materials were, were used by past people to mend broken vessels. This was apparently a very common practice um, because it shows up in the archaeological record and it shows up in the historical record. So we're even seeing recipes for homemade pottery pastes published in 18th century magazines. Um, rivets of various metals uh, from tin to silver were also used to repair uh, fragments of pottery by fastening them together. Uh, we also see evidence of what is sometimes called sewing, uh, where several holes may have been drilled into both the fragment and adjoining pieces. Um, and the holes are then strung, uh, sometimes with twine, uh, cotton thread, uh, thin metal wire too. Um, looking for these repairs uh, are important to do because they really contribute an important piece uh, to that uh, pot's story. Archaeology can help us access uh, information about the past, uh, right, that other disciplines can't really get at. But at the same time, there really is just so much information about the past that also is really elusive to archaeologists. But I think what belies the value of pottery uh, analysis is a holistic, multidisciplinary approach uh, that engages lots of different modes of knowing. So ethnography, biography, autobiography, and history. Um, some pottery analysts like myself use these bits of information coming from those disciplines to piece together what we might call a cultural biography or the social life of a thing. 
Life history studies of objects, though, don't take on the perspective that pots are like these uh, literally living things. So we don't think that. But instead, we consider all of the things that happen to a pot during its lifetime from manufacture uh, until ultimately it's discarded uh, into the archaeological record. And uh, in my own research, I extend the cultural biography of Colin Aware uh, beyond the archaeological record even uh, to how archaeologists and museums interact with Colin Aware in the present day and what that reveals about the uh, politics at play that create archaeological knowledge. The analysis of pottery might even call for collaborating with specialists from geology uh, or, uh, or chemistry uh, to aid in sourcing analyses, for example. And this is a specific conversation that we're going to plan to return to in a future episode. It's also not uncommon for um, archaeology's pottery specialists to apply experimental archaeology and ethnoarchaeology to their research. So ethnoarchaeologists study contemporary people really to determine how human behavior is translated into the archaeological record. Uh, documenting prayers, uh, rituals, uh, or taboos observed during the manufacturing process uh, 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 by pottery making societies would be an example. Experimental archaeologists uh, design experiments to determine archaeological correlates of ancient behavior. Uh, so an experimental archaeologist might, uh, test, uh, might test fire pottery at different temperatures and record any changes that they observe to the pottery. Ethnoarchaeology and experimental archaeology are often thought of as modern analogies to the past. Uh, so they have to be treated with some caution uh, because they're not direct correlations. As Prudence Rice says, uh, quote, it is by incorporating ethnographic insights into technological and archaeological studies that this tradition uh, meaning the tradition of uh, pottery, uh, that this tradition can be most fruitfully illuminated, end quote. So in summary, uh, these approaches to knowing pottery are best used in combination. It's then that they have the power to tell us something about the past. So this brings us to the end of today's talk. Thank you for listening uh, to this very first episode of Season 3, Pottery Analysis, on Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Have a wonderful week and take care.